The process of applied functional science is the transformation of the notion into the motion. From the Gray Institute, I'm John, and this is the Gray Institute Podcast. Hi, this is Kelly from Gray Institute. You are cordially invited to join Dr. Gary Gray, father of function, and Doug Gray for the Chain Reaction two-day live virtual experience, a two-day seminar that will provide immense value and immediate impact to your craft. Chain Reaction will empower you, the movement professional, to better serve and enhance the lives of your patients and clients in the areas of analysis, rehabilitation, training, and prevention. Register at www.chainreactionvirtual.com. The Chain Reaction two-day live virtual experience is November 7th and 8th, 2020. You will have access to the event video and content for 30 days, even if you cannot attend any or all of the two-day virtual event. We have an early bird rate of $445 through August 31st, 2020, 495 afterwards. Group rates are also available. Please call Gray Institute directly at 517-266-4653. Features and benefits for each seminar registrant. An ebook for the two-day presentation. Access to the event video content for 30 days, even if you cannot attend any or all of the two-day virtual event. You can earn CEUs, 16 and a half contact hours, based upon passing the exam, followed by your certificate. You get to learn and experience applied functional science firsthand from the source. So register at www.chainreactionvirtual.com and we will see you online on November 7th and 8th. Gray Institute is internationally acclaimed for its innovation, development, mastery, and delivery of applied functional science, AFS. AFS is based on scientific truth, not theory, of how the human body moves in all three planes. AFS allows movement professionals like you to apply the best, most effective, and most efficient movements to any individual based on specific needs and goals. For 40 years through training, education, and mentorship, Gray Institute has equipped over 150,000 professionals with comprehensive knowledge in the principles of applied functional science. Whether you are physical therapists, personal trainers, athletic trainers, chiropractors, strength and conditioning coaches, coaches, physicians, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, osteopaths, physical therapy assistants, or kinesiologists, our goal is to help you become the go-to movement professional. The Gray Institute podcast is questions-based. You send in your questions and we'll discuss them. If you're listening and have questions, email them to info at grayinstitute.com. We join Gary as he discusses optimal body movement and function for our clients. From Gray Institute, I'm Gary Gray, and this is the Gray Institute 
podcast. Boy, welcome everybody. This is uh, gonna be a fun, fun podcast, at least for me. I hope it is for you. Uh, it is one of those one questioner podcasts that uh, I get to ramble on and on and on, and uh, hopefully have some fun with y'all. Uh, and the question uh, is perfectly timed because we have our first ever virtual chain reaction two-day seminar coming up chain reaction is a seminar we've done now for 32 years hard to believe uh but it's been a, a huge blessing to not only us but to hopefully everybody that's taken it it's evolved changed upgraded improved hopefully um but years ago we used to do chain reaction uh that we call chain reaction oxymorons and the whole purpose behind that was that with an oxymoron, we could more effectively share what true human function is. And this person who asked the question remembered that. So they have to be kind of old too. Uh, and they said, hey, I, I went to a chain reaction where you talked about oxymorons of function. And uh, that seemed to give me a better idea of what I need to be thinking about in order to help my patients and clients. Can you recall some of those oxymorons and share them with us? And I go, oh yeah, in fact, that'd be a lot of fun. So today is called chain reaction oxymorons. Now, as you all know, an oxymoron is a kind of an apparent contradictory terms. When they appear in conjunction, they give more meaning. Uh, another way to say it is it's not um, either or, it's and. Uh, so it's kind of like the concept of um, paradoxically speaking, a lot of people want to know, well, should it be to the left or should it be to the right? And the, and the answer is yes. Um, should it be up, should it be down? And the answer is yes. Uh, should I do that or should I do that? And the answer is yes. And what's fascinating about human function is it's paradoxical in nature and it is oxymoronic in nature. Um, and therefore we take advantage of oxymorons to share. And I'd like to share oxymorons with you. So hopefully it'll help you even instantly now think about strategies for your patients and clients but it would uh, i believe uh, if you haven't attended chain reaction or you haven't done it recently won't make uh, make you want to kind of think about that to uh, join us um, during that first full weekend in november uh, and uh, be a part of uh, this virtual experience uh, here's a, here's an oxymoron. For example, uh, passive uh, is a word. Aggressive is a word. They're they're contradictory terms. Are you passive? Are you aggressive? Well, um, yes. And uh, one way to say that is I'm passively aggressive, or I'm aggressively passive. Now, one of the keys to oxymorons is which word comes first, which word comes second, based on what you really want to reveal. And we'll make that obvious in a number of our oxymorons. Um, now the first one is an oxymoron for you all because you're listening to this and uh, because you're listening to this I know you want to get better and I know in a way you're selfish. Uh, you selfishly want to get better and hopefully selfishly want to become the best but you're selfless uh, because you're doing it for somebody else. So the oxymoron is selfishly selfless and that's who you are and that's why it's such an honor to speak to you uh, because you're saying I want to know more about human function than anybody else. Um, I selfishly want to be the best but you're not doing it for you, you're doing it for somebody else. So that's a beautiful uh, oxymoron called selfishly selfless 
which permeates not only what we do in our movement professional life, but in all of our life that we want to get healthy in order to be able to serve others. Well, getting healthy is kind of selfish, but in order to serve others is selfless. So that would be a selfishly selfless oxymoron. Uh, One of the uh, things we've been teaching for years uh, is that human function is complex. Uh, And I think in a way we've even made it more confusing. I know personally I have because of my misunderstanding of what function uh, is. And I I didn't do it on purpose, but I think I confused a lot of people over the 45 years that I've had the privilege to teach. So the oxymoron that comes to mind here is uh, complex simplicity. And what we mean by that is our goal at the Grand Institute is to take the complex and make it simple. Now, there's a flip of that oxymoron called simple complexity. And now you're talking about um, kind of the another side of complexity. Let me see if I can let, let me see if I can give you an example that uh, helps me. Um, there's uh, two mountains, one on one side, one on the other. And in the middle, there's a huge valley. And you're at the top of one mountain, the first mountain, and you're looking around and going, this is beautiful. This is pretty easy. I haven't had to do anything yet. I haven't had to climb anything yet. And so this to me is kind of a a simple part of beauty looking around. But then you go down this hill, very steep hill through bad terrain, and you have to go through this valley that's really tough, all kinds of challenges. Uh, We'll put some animals in there, we'll put some mud in there, and we'll put some snakes in there, and we'll put some, you know, it's tough. We got to get through the valley of, and we call this the valley of complexity. But then when you get through there, you got to climb this other mountain. Okay, you're fatigued and it's hard, but you climb up. But when you finally get up there, you look back and you know what's in that valley because you've been through it. Now, when you're on the other mountain, you didn't know it was in the valley. You just thought, well, okay, this is pretty easy, pretty simple. And what we pride ourselves in is that we really believe in order to make our ability to help our patients and clients simple and obvious to our mind and obvious and simple for our clients to perform is that we have to go through the valley of complexity first. Now, if you look at it the other way, that say, well, if they're simple on both sides of the mountain, doesn't it seem a lot simpler to not have to go through the valley of complexity? Well, a lot of systems do that. Um, I was listening uh, years ago to one of the co-creators of a a movement screen that is, uh, theoretically, they call it functional. And I kind of challenged him. I said, you know, how did you come up with these seven particular uh, tests? And their answer was pretty powerful. It's real simple. It's simple to teach. Uh, It's simple to do. Uh, It's simple to score. Um, But it's not based on anything functional. So you look at like one of their tests where they lay on a table and they lift the leg up. Yeah, that's really simple. If it goes to 90 degrees, we give it a, let's say a three. Uh, if it goes, you know, kind of close, we give it a two. If it comes part way up, it's a one. That's pretty simple. But you haven't gone through the validated complexity to find out that's not a functional test. So even though it's simple, and I'm, I'm gonna say this hopefully very respectively, it's on the stupid side of simple. It's on the ignorant side of simple. 
Uh, I can make something simple for you, but if it's simply not what you need to be doing, it's not right. It's not the right kind of simplicity. In fact, it takes simple and makes it complex as opposed to making the complex simple. Now, I can't tell you, you always do a good job in that, but that's our that's our goal is to say this human body is a miracle. It's complex, but we're going to understand it so well that we're going to make our assessment technique simple and our training and rehabilitation technique simple, but we got to learn the truth, which is complex to come up with the strategies. Uh, and so we're after going through the valley of complexity, coming to the mountaintop of simplicity and earning our way there, as opposed to having somebody hand us a bunch of techniques or tests that aren't functional, aren't movement, don't make sense, but they're simple. Uh, and sad thing is a lot of people are willing to accept that. Uh, I want quick and easy, simple. I want my hamburger now. I want the drive through and I want it simple and I don't want this to be difficult on me. Uh, so uh, it's a tough one. It's kind of separates what I call the movement practitioners who are selfishly selfless, those who are really willing to put in the work in order to serve others better. One of the primary um, oxymorons that we use a lot in chain reaction and applied functional science is causative cures. I have a, a client that I have right now that last week um, we were encouraged because he's a very, very good triathlete. But over the last number of months, he's been able to unable to run because of back pain. And of course, when he went to his doctor, and even when he went to his therapist, they said, well, you're a triathlete, you can still swim and you can still bike because running's hurting your back. And I said to him, no, no, uh, if we understand the cause of the pain in your back, which is has nothing to do with your back, then we can turn the cause into a cure. In other words, we can turn running into the cure. So if I went to the doctor or the therapist and said, what do you think's causing their back pain? They said, well, you ding-a-ling, it's, uh, it's because of running. Well, no, that's an activity they do. Their body, because of something, in this gentleman's case, it was his hips and his thoracic spine, put abnormal stress on his low back and therefore he couldn't run. It hurt when he, when he ran. But I shared with them, we're gonna turn running into the cure. Oh boy, that, that was encouraging to him because by now he's running and it feels good to run. And I said, if the hips are moving well and the thoracic spine's moving well in the transformational zones of running, then literally running is gonna help your back. It's going to restore what we need. And it's gonna take away the abnormal stress, stress to the facets and to the ligaments and to the discs. And so we take advantage of about everything we can uh, to create this oxymoron for causative cures. Not, not every cause we can transform into the cure, but we, if, it's a, if it's a thing they enjoy and they want, and especially if they need to do, we'll work our tail off to make sure that it becomes a causative cure. Well, an, an oxymoron that we're well known uh, throughout the movement world in is what we call integrated isolation and isolated integration. And this oxymoron uh, emanated from me making huge mistakes early on in my career where what I did is I did a lot of what's called isolated integration. Here's what I mean by that. I concentrated on integrating every joint in every plane of motion uh, with every muscle group I could to allow the patient or client to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish and they could do it.
However, if they went out into real function and then had to do it in a different way, and instead of having everybody be a friend, that some of the friends were removed, then all of a sudden they wouldn't be as successful. And therefore, I quickly realized I didn't isolate well. Well, back in my day, isolation was done artificially. Uh, for example, if you isolated the knee, you put somebody on an isokinetic knee machine and you had them extend and, and bend their knee to artificially strengthen the quadriceps and hamstring. Now we know that that machine doesn't pass the litmus test. It's 0 for, it's 0 for 14 in our functional spectrum. But in a way, isolation, that's a good strategy, but isolation while integrated is the best strategy. So if you're listening to this and maybe not driving, but you could stand up, if you stood up and squatted at the same time, reach your hands down towards the ground, what we're doing there is we're integrating the butt and the hamstring and the calf and the thoracolumbar fascia to help your knee decelerate knee flexion. If you did the same thing with your hands above your head, so put your hands above your head and kind of put them behind you, now squat. Now all of a sudden, the knee goes, wait a minute, where did all my friends go? And I said, well, I tricked them. I told you to keep your hands over your head, which kept your hip extended, didn't allow you to use your calf as much, didn't allow you to use your trunk as much, and therefore, I basically did what we called integrated isolation. So I isolated out the knee in this case, in the sagittal plane, while it's still integrated, not artificially on a knee table. Now, we spent a lot of time in chain reaction talking about that, because that's the key to chain reaction biomechanics. Do you know enough about the function to initially create isolated integration, and then do you know enough to gradually create integrated isolation at the various joints and the various planes of motion for that particular activity, because that should be the progression of movement through tweakology that we should do with everything we do, whether it be prevention, whether it be performance, whether it be rehabilitation. Now, some of you might say, this that's fascinating, let's go deeper. We don't have time to go deep in all these, and of course I'm trying to con you into you know, learning more from us, but I just wanna kinda get you thinking and thinking, wow, you know, that's, that's, that's a pretty cool oxymoron that makes, that makes sense to me. One oxymoron uh, was taught to me by Dr. David Tiberio is called ambiguously clear, and he came up with this oxymoron when he realized that when we facilitate movement that creates motion at joints, that turns on proprioceptors, that then turns on muscles to control movement, to allow us to do what we want to do, that the information from a group of proprioceptors with the same features, let's say the Ruffini endings, um, basically create a ambiguous single signal to the body. Uh, the body wouldn't know what to do with it. It's ambiguous. It's, uh, it does, definitely is a feedback system, and it de definitely tells us what's going on, but it's ambiguous. However, if I then integrate the Pansinian corpuscles uh, along with the Golgi Manzonis and, of course, the fascia, let's, the, the proprioceptors in the fascia, now the ambiguously signals that come from these different types of proprioceptors become more clear. And so... For example, something as simple as doing a lunge that involves the foot and ankle that has a lot of Pansinian corpuscles in it, uh, and the hip that has a lot of Ruffini endings in it, 
um, that creates stress, let's say, to the Golgi ligament endings in the knee, of course, in the hip and the foot, that these signals that get into the neurological system as they come in at the right time, and that's why it's important that we have the sequencing of function done right, that the signal becomes quite clear, the body can take advantage of it, therefore more muscles are turned on, more control of the motion, more eccentric load, and more ability to actually do what we wanna do. So, big one, big one, but thanks Dr. Dave Tiberio on that one. That's a, that's a, that's in the uh, huge range. So, we have another fun, fun one that we came up with years ago uh, because we we knew that we had to come up with an oxymoron and ultimately a new word to describe muscle function. So we learned in school that muscles can function concentrically, that's the shortening of the muscle. Eccentrically, that's a lengthening of the muscle. Or isometrically, where the muscle length does not change. There's a static reaction going on there. The problem with that is, is when the human body gets up and starts moving, that because of mass and momentum and gravity and ground reaction force and the muscle reactions themselves, that motion is created that is controlled by muscles because of the stimulation of the proprioceptors, where when we really look at what's going on, the muscle is functioning eccentrically and concentrically and isometrically at the exact same time. So it's not, well, we have an eccentric load followed by a concentric production of force. It's, hey, when we walk and your ankle goes through maximum dorsiflexion, the calf is eccentrically slowing down the forward momentum of the tibia in order to extend the knee. Yes, that's you heard that right. The calf's goal, the soleus's goal is to extend the knee. At that exact same time, that muscle is functioning concentrically at the subtalar joint to invert the heel and concentrically at the lower leg to externally rotate the lower leg. Uh, and so if you said, well, is it functioning eccentrically or concentrically? The answer would be yes. And so it's eccentrically concentric or what we call econcentric. So we made up a word. A lot of our words are made up because of an oxymoron. Here's another one. Mobile stability. Do I want mobility or do I want stability? Yes. The key to this is stability is the body in control in motion. So a lot of times when somebody said, well, that's stable, the, the, the vision we would have is that it didn't move. In other words, that it didn't wiggle much. Well, some of the best stable people have huge mobility at the same time because they're able to control that mobility. So are we after flexibility or strength of a joint of a motion to create a movement? The answer is yes. So that's why in our 3D maps, that's why a lot of what we do, anytime we integrate something that has a lot of mobility, we instantaneously create the opportunity of stability. That's why we invented the true stretch. The true stretch with four points of attachment creates a lot of stability for the body to facilitate more mobility. Then as we gradually remove uh, hanging on to the true stretch or gradually remove one of our feet from full weight bearing, now the body is afforded less stability from the true stretch and has to find its own stability while, while maintaining its mobility. So somebody would say, well, what are you after here, Gary? You after mobility or stability? We, said, we would say yes. 
And you know, you already know the word we made up on that is most stability. So it keeps us constantly reminding ourselves that if we do something, and I did this wrong a lot early in my career, where I would create mobility but not give my patients an ability to take advantage of that mobility to strengthen it uh, to create stability. So I'd give them mobility, let's say, of knee extension, and they'd leave the clinic and come back and they'd have that knee flexor contracture again. And that frustrated me because I know when they left here a couple days ago, it was fully extended. What I didn't do is I didn't create stability with the mobility. I didn't teach them what to do to stimulate the muscles to then take advantage of that new mobility to create most stability. So that's, that's a fun one. That's a, again, we can talk about that one all day, all night. Another one we talk a lot about in applied functional science and certainly in chain reaction is loaded explosion. Well, is it loading or is it exploding? The answer is yes. So that's how the body works. We load to explode. You'll hear us say that a lot. We load in three planes of motion to explode. So if I was going to hit a golf ball, I could put my driver down just like I do my, by, with a putter and put it right next to the ball and then immediately pull my driver through towards the target line and see if I could hit the ball far. Well, that's trying to explode without loading. Most golfers don't do that. We go the opposite direction. We take our club and we go the opposite way we ultimately want to go in order to then load the body so it explodes. And so there's a lot of ramifications to that. Try to jump without loading first. In other words, try to go up without going down first. Try to throw a ball without going the opposite direction that you ultimately want to throw your hand. Try to swing a tennis racket. Go ahead. I'll let you fight me as long as you don't load. If you say, I'm just going to do concentric explosion without the econcentric ability to load first, I'd go, I'm in. Uh, but as soon as I see you start loading your hip or loading your thoracic spine, I'm out because I know you're going to be able to effectively load the system in order to explode, to create some velocity to your punch and some power to your punch uh, where you're going to beat me up. And so I'm out if all of a sudden I know you know the oxymoron of loaded explosion. Consistent variability. Whoa, that's a big one. The, another word we're going to use for that is the power of tweakology. If you've ever listened to us before, you've heard the concept of tweakology. Our job is to get our patients and clients ready for the real world. The real world is variable. It's different. It's not like our clinic. It's not as controlled. It's got different surfaces that we walk and move on. Uh, it has different slants. It has different lumpy, bumpy things. It has wind out there. It has sun out there. It has obstacles to avoid out there. It's got all kinds of things going on. And therefore, in knowing that we had to be variable to do everything that we had to figure out consistent variability. That This is another one that, again, I did wrong years ago. In the late 70s, they taught me, oh, this is the way uh, to, to teach somebody to lift. And what they did is they taught us a way with no variability. We all of a sudden read a study where in a factory they studied thousands of people who had intermittent or chronic back pain uh, and those who never had. And when they evaluated them lifting a box, the ones that lifted it the same way all the time are the ones that beat up their back. Huh, makes sense. The ones that didn't have any back pain, every time they lifted the box, they lifted it up a little differently. 
Now, they didn't do that consciously, uh, but they their body knew they were smart enough to do This time when you pick up the box, let's put the right foot a little far forward. Or this time, let's take the right hand a little further there. Or let's move the left hand here. And their body would say, you know what? That's a little different how we did it five minutes ago. And if we keep creating that consistent variability, you know what? We're going to be able to get through our job here and get through our career here without any back pain. So we have to consciously create the consistent variability in order to facilitate the reactions that we want. And therefore, we have to know the power of tweakology. We talk a lot about that, of course, in our gift program within applied functional science, all of our certifications, all of our specialties, and certainly in chain reaction. Relatively real, ooh, that's a tough one. Because now we're gonna talk about what bones are really doing. Now bones rotate, they translate, but when they move, the bone movement itself is what it really did, okay? But it doesn't really have any significance to us yet until we apply it to another bone. So if we have the knee um, and we have a femur and a tibia, uh, all of a sudden the tibia can be doing something and the femur can be doing something in real space and we will describe that, but it becomes significant if we can describe what relatively is happening at the knee, therefore relatively real. So, for example, if you sit me down on a table and you, you would put a pin in my tibia and you'd have me extend my knee, you'll see my tibia externally rotate. They call that the screw home mechanism. Those of you who learned that go, got it, got it, uh, here's the problem. In function, that's wrong. Not only wrong, it's the opposite. So if you put a that same pin in my tibia and you let me walk, you're gonna see as my knee goes through extension, the tibia externally rotate. And you're gonna say, well, that's what we just said. We said when you're sitting there, and you extend your knee, the tibia externally rotates, screw home mechanism. And Gary, you just said that when you're walking, that tibia externally rotates. Ah, that's the real bone motion of the tibia. The femur at that exact same time during gait is externally rotating faster. In fact, a lot of the external rotation of the tibia is because of the external rotation of the femur because of the end range internal rotation of that hip. Hopefully that was confusing. But when you see it, it's like, well, of course. But if the femur is rotating externally faster than the tibia, in relative terms, that's internal rotation. So for years with my manual therapy technique, I was doing the wrong thing. Not only wrong, opposite. Opposite is wrong. It is more wrong than just a little bit wrong. So we constantly ask ourselves, what's the relatively real thing going on there? Because that's what I wanna produce if I'm gonna enhance function. That's why we have our manual therapy techniques called functional manual reaction. What is the function first? If I looked at the function of the knee during extension, and saw that it was really internal rotation, I would have been smart enough not to believe the books who tell me it's external rotation. So it allows us to have the power of thinking on our own, which is really the power selfishly we all wanna have in order that we want it, we can become selfless. Unstable balance. Um, this can be looked at a couple different ways, but if I'm 
unstable, that's one thing if I'm balanced on another thing, but if you put it together, it's really what we're after. We need to create clinically controlled environments where we create instability that we have to then find our balance. So we want them to be a little bit unstable, but then have to capture that unstableness and then be able to come back home and create balance. Now, I was taught that a functional balance test is standing on one leg and not moving. That's not functional unless you have certain dance that you have to stand on one leg and not move. But 99.9% of function, that doesn't happen. Doesn't happen when I walk, doesn't happen when I run, doesn't happen when I dance, most dances. Uh, doesn't happen when I swing, doesn't happen when I punch, doesn't happen when I hug. So what does happen? Well, it's an unstable balance. In other words, let's say I'm on my left foot and I reach my right foot forward as far as I can, not touch the ground and come back. Okay, I've created instability by having them drive their foot in a direction. They have to decelerate that and bring that back home. That's what would we call true functional balance. So unstable balance is a oxymoron that constantly reminds us that balance should be studied in motion, not in stillness. That's a, a quote uh, from uh, a Tai Chi book that I read back in the 70s that I quickly looked at that and go, whew, I'm doing it all wrong. I'm trying to create stillness with balance. I don't want to create stillness. I want to create an unstable aspect, a safe, unstable aspect, and not an artificial one. Now, we can, I can put something underneath you and have it so unstable that you have to fight it, but that's not functional stability unless that's what you want to do. And that's if, if your sport is involved where that thing underneath you is wiggling a lot, then that's what we're after. But in most human function, the body's moving on a fixed thing like the ground. And we want to create motion or instability or an unstable reaction of the body so it finds its own balance and stability. Consciously subconscious, that's another biggie, 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 biggie. So what we mean by that is all of human function is subconscious. For some reason, somebody started teaching me that you could have the brain tell the VMO what to do or the transfer subdominus what to do or to contract your butt and squeeze your butt and squeeze a dollar between your, you know, between your buttocks and your crack. And, and that is about as artificial as you can get. And to remind us that that's not a good strategy. We have the strategy of consciously subconscious where we create a reaction to get the reaction we want. So for example, instead of having somebody lay down on their back and farting into a blood pressure cuff to facilitate a reaction, let's say of the transverse abdominis, which by the way, doesn't because you have no transverse plane motion occurring there because the body's flat on the ground. It'd be better to stand up, uh, be a full weight bearing on one leg and partial on the other, and then take your arm and move it up and around to facilitate a little sagittal extension, a little frontal plane, lateral flexion, but even more than that, rotation, to see if I have the motion in my shoulder, my thoracic spine, and my hip to facilitate the proprioceptor that would turn on the transverse abdominis. So why do so many transverse abdominis get turned off and by people have back pain? Because of the foot dysfunction, hip tightness, thoracic spine tightness, shoulder tightness, gravity beating us up, sitting too long, not being able to move and understand three-dimensional mobility and stability. And therefore, we, the, pra the practitioner of movement, 
the scientists of movement need to understand that our, we need to assess that and then use tasks that the person knows, such as take your foot here, take your hand there, have your eyes look there, in order to get the reaction that we want, um, that we want it to happen, that reaction to happen subconsciously with doing a conscious task. Um, Harvey Pennick was amazing at that. He could get you to do what he wanted you to do in the golf swing without telling you because he would consciously have that thing happen subconsciously. In other words, he would say, when you take your club back, I want you to feel like you got a bug under the inside part of your right heel. And as you take that back, I want you to squish that bug. In fact, sometimes you'd put like just a little clump of grass and say, I want you to squish that clump of grass. So as we took that back, we would squish that grass, which would immediately keep the foot more eberted in the transformational zone as it went through inversion to create the reaction he wanted. So that would be consciously subconscious. Guided freedom is another another uh, phrase for our FMR. So when we create freedom of the body to choose another path, then that's powerful for our patients and clients, but it has to be a safe path and a free path. In other words, free to go. So when somebody chooses a path that is an abnormal compensation that causes pain, our job is to create a new path of movement for them that would create motion that wouldn't be destructive, let's say, to a particular part of a joint. Well, in order to do that, many times we have to do what we call guided freedom. We would then guide that motion of that joint, that movement of the body with our hands consistent with what would happen during function in order to create freedom of the body to then choose that path when it's out on its own. So when they're not in our clinics, that are not in our studios, that are not in our gyms, that we can now facilitate that and we simply call that guided freedom. That's a big one. Well, the gift is 40 weeks of learning guided freedom because you become a functional manual reaction certified specialist. Uh, but we have to go through the valley of complexity to get there. I can't tell you a bunch of rules, concave, convex rules, or push that, or push that, or jerk that, or jerk this, or snap that, or snap that. Uh, I have to, first of all, teach you what happens in function during that activity, and then you get to use your guidance of your brain, of your heart, and your hands to facilitate freedom to allow that person now to use that new movement no longer the path of least resistance. In fact, you create a new path of least resistance. And therefore that new path of least resistance becomes a guided freedom. So we also have what we call um, anticipated surprise. And this is a big, big biggie, simply because um, we don't know what we're gonna get when we get out there in the real world, but we have to anticipate it. And therefore we have to get our patients and clients ready for it. So we have to anticipate the surprises and we have to prepare them for that. So for example, a surprise could be that I'm rebounding the ball, but the ball is not coming directly to me. It's way over my head. In fact, it's to my head and a little bit to my left, but because of the way I jumped, I'm gonna be coming down on my left foot first. And my hands are reaching for the ball, which extends my left hip. 
and reaches to the left, which abducts my left hip, and reaches way around so it rotates my left hip in external rotation. And when I hit the ground, my foot, I know, is going through eversion. Talus is going to go down and in, and it's going to drive the knee into internal rotation and abduction with the butt trying to decelerate that with extension, abduction, and external rotation, I'm, I just set myself up for an ACL tear or a labral tear. And so, surprise, um, boy, if all of a sudden we didn't provide that opportunity uh, in our training and conditioning, especially our prevention and of course, in our rehabilitation, uh, it's not a good surprise. If it's an anticipated surprise, if the body, when it does that, says been there done that can handle that give me give me what else you got then now we got ourselves a an oxymoron deal our job is to anticipate the lot of variability and consistently provide that so it's an anticipated surprise a welcome surprise so to say strangely familiar is another way to describe that um we we want to allow uh, our patients, clients' bodies to not just always kind of follow this thing that is, you know, the perfect way to do it or this is what's going to happen. We want it to kind of be feel strange to them, like, wow, this is a little bit of uniqueness, but we gave them enough training that that strangeness is familiar to them. In other words, their proprioceptors go, yeah, this is this, we don't do this all the time. This is kind of strange. This normally would have created an injury in our body, but because of the power of tweakology uh, and consistent variability, this is strangely familiar to us. And because of the familiarity, we know how to quickly react and turn on the right muscles to decelerate that so you don't tear yourself up. And uh, so that's a big, 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 big one. Couple more, and uh, we got her whipped here. Uh, we have a lot more, though. I'm just throwing some of the top ones at you, but you can see where this kind of gets kind of fun because, as you know, the oxymoron it means you know the strategy, which means you know the truth it emanates from, and therefore it allows you to develop multiple techniques. Inconspicuously obvious. Uh, so, is it inconspicuous or is it obvious? It's yes. Well, how does it become that? Well, we got to know our function so well. So when we assess somebody with 3D maps, we're trying to find the hidden gems. We're trying to find what is the body hiding. 3D maps forces the body to show us what it's got and what it ain't got. And therefore, it is an inconspicuously obvious assessment. So if I know that walking, a very global human movement, involves extension and abduction and flexion and adduction and internal rotation, then I better figure a way in my assessment in an upright posture um, with ground reaction force gravity and mass momentum to facilitate those motions. And if I can do that and facilitate it so you show me the maximum amount of mobility and stability you have with those motions at that hip, what was inconspicuous, if I did anything else, let's say I'm trying to figure that out and I'm laying you on a table and just lifting your leg and I go, I think I know what the hip's doing now. No, you're not, you're never gonna know what the hip is doing in function by doing that. Um, uh, or 
somehow get on all fours and point your hand forward and your foot backwards and say, well, I think I know how well that glute can extend the hip and stabilize through the trunk. No, you don't. Uh, that's not even close to what happens. But if we take it through 3D maps, 3D maps will all of a sudden allow that inconspicuous lack of mobility or stability to become obvious to us. That's what we want to do. We want our exercise programs to do the same thing. Uh, another oxymoron we could kind of throw in here. I'm not sure if it's an oxymoron. It's more a little bit of an oxymoron phrase. Some oxymoron phrases aren't pure oxymorons because they're not uh, contradictory terms all the time. They're just terms that sometimes people group uh, in different groupings. So sometimes people say, well, this is the exercise and this is the test. Well, which is it? Yes. Um, so, you know, here at Gray Institute, we say, if done right, the test is the exercise and the exercise properly tweaked is the test done better. Uh, and so we could call it a tested exercise or uh, an exercise test for that particular oxymoron to allow us to understand how we should assess and how we should treat. And our last one just for today is independently dependent. And this goes, gets back a little bit to selfishly selfless, uh, where we started. And what that simply means is my ultimate goal is to make my patient or client independent of me. And I want to do that as soon as possible. I don't want them to be like, well, I'm not going to get better unless I go see Gary. I want to make a great home program for them and really incentivize them and engage them and empower them uh, and encourage them uh, so they can know that they have the ability to get better on their own. However, with that, then they go, you know what, anytime I have a problem or you know what, I, I am kind of now dependent on Gary because he may be independent. Well, what are you? Are you independent or are you dependent? Answers, yes, I'm independently dependent because of the great treatment of a scientist of applied functional science who knows these oxymorons and can create an environment that will incentivize me, empower me, engage me, enrich me, uh, encourage me uh, that I can maintain and even enhance my health and well-being on my own, yet at the same time I know where to go, who I'm dependent upon to make sure that continuously happens. And so we create an environment of independently dependent. I hope you enjoyed these oxymorons. You can tell just uh, hopefully by the tone of my voice that I, I enjoy them. Uh, I seem to come up with a new oxymoron about every day. Um, you know we also deal in the realm of triadoxes. Uh, triadoxes, of course, are paradoxes done in 3D. So is movement uh, a paradox? Is it sagittal plane or frontal plane? No, it's frontal transverse and sagittal plane. Uh, is movement mobility or stability? Well, it's really movement is mobile mobility, stability, and endurance. And so it's kind of a triadox. And so um, we'll come back at you with you some triadoxes sometime. But right now, I hope you enjoyed our chain reaction oxymorons. And I really hope you would consider joining us for our virtual two-day chain reaction, where we'll go uh, deep into all of these oxymorons and understand the why uh, behind the what and uh, the how come and uh, what does it look like uh, aspect or what we call the truth and the principles, the strategies and the actual techniques. It's the transformation of the notion into the motion. So on behalf of myself, the entire Grand Institute family, just uh, wish you the best. Uh, continue to be selfishly selfless. Uh, and continue to pursue 
the best environments for you and your patients and clients and uh, know how proud we are of you. Uh, know we're part of the greatest uh, profession in the world as movement professionals where we get to try doxically take advantage of the physical, the movement of our uh, of the individual's body to ultimately, hopefully, create an environment for healing for their mind and their spirit as well. Uh, be well. This is John. Thanks for joining us here on the Gray Institute podcast. At Gray Institute, our goal is to do one thing the best we can, and that is to help you become the go-to movement professional. If you have a question for future podcasts or questions about anything Gray Institute offers, including education, live or online specializations, or mentorships, please email us at info at grayinstitute.com. If we use your question on air, we will send you some cool stuff. Be sure to look for our next podcast coming soon. Have a great day. Move your body, move your body.